morning, everyone, as you join us in singing our God and firm foundation.
saying, what if you had never come to save us? What if you had never come to save us? What if you had never given grace? It was love that held you there upon the cross. It was love that led you to the grave. Sing forgiven. we have Forgive 
Christ in me, my Jesus, my victory. All the promise of Christ in me, all the promise of Christ
sing a song like this that is this incredible combination of two things that you bless us that you give us a hope and a future that you forgive us you set us free and at the same time it gives you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise so that we can say yes these things are happening to me yes I've been forgiven yes my life has radically changed Yes, I'm moving into hope. At the same time, God deserves all the glory and all the praise for what he's doing in us. God, we are people of both praise and pain. You call us to praise you through our pain in the midst of trials and circumstances that are beyond our control. We look to you, the one who holds the universe together who knit me together in my mother's womb, who put breath in my lungs. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't just create us and say, well, see you later. That you provided a way for us to be with you for eternity through the blood of your son, Jesus. That our sins are washed away, that we are forgiven and redeemed because of what you have done for us. It is a free gift that many of us have accepted and some of us here have not. So God, we're asking that you would continue to open our hearts to you, Lord, to hear what you have for us and to trust you. We thank you for this time of worship, God. Help us continue to worship you as we hear your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
You can be seated. Morning, everybody. Tim asked me to get up and do a little announcement this morning. Um, as Doug had said, our, we're going to have a special meeting on March 6th after the service. We call that our administrative meeting, a.k.a. the annual budget meeting. Or what I like to refer to as give glory to God for all he has done and remind ourselves of our purpose here and the vision God has given for us meeting. So... Um, if you are a member, you're welcome to come to that meeting. If you are not a member, you're welcome to come to that meeting. If you know someone that doesn't even attend here and they would like to come, they're welcome too. I guess you get the point. It's an open meeting for anybody that would like to attend. I put together a, a packet of information so you could have that ahead of time. Uh, it's out in the lobby on that table where you first come in. It's got a cover sheet, copy of the budget which shows last year uh, budget actual proposed for next year it's got minutes for the two prior meetings that we had um, and then also a list of the appointments of so the individuals who are going to be appointed for positions for this year so avail yourself of that take a copy uh, I did like 75 copies so take like one per family if you would and uh, if you have any questions on that uh, you can hold the questions till the meeting if you want to you know grab me after church this week next week and uh, run questions by me that that's fine too um, I think that's, oh, the, the uh, packet is kind of just a summary. When we actually have the meeting, I'll have uh, a PowerPoint and I'll have a lot more details for you. Uh, but it it's basically just has what we have to approve at the meeting. So that's, that's what we're presenting to you. Okay, and uh, also the children can be dismissed for junior, junior church right now. Thanks. Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. As you're turning there, um, our culture is in trouble. Uh, we are in trouble in our society. Our world is full of brokenness. Our world is full of disunity. A world is full of hopelessness and addiction. A world is full of those that believe that their life is so futile that they're to the point where they want to end their lives. And people lack hope. They lack peace. They lack joy in this world today. Uh, some people don't even know if their life is meaningful or not. And the breakdown that is happening in our world is epidemic of what the breakdown that is happening in families today. In churches, we are finding that young people are scattering away from churches very quickly. When they do not have the mandate of their parents to come to church, young people oftentimes do not go to church in their 20s and 30s and forward. And it's a deeper level of misery because the child will go, or that now adolescent or young adult will now go to colleges that will give them worldviews about structures and they will be catechized or disciplined by those that are around in their society. And they'll be giving them worldviews that are antithetical to God and his word. 
And these young people are finding themselves losing a sense of identity. They're losing a sense of security and they're losing a sense of motivation for their lives. We are living in a society that is in trouble. The problem is that the society that's in trouble outside is now a society that has bled into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this society has been in trouble since the very beginning. This society has failed to submit to God, has doubted the word of God, has doubted the goodness of God, and has doubted the authority of God since the very beginning, but it is epidemic today. I will tell you that we're going to be looking at a, a passage of scripture from Ephesians that was written 2,000 years ago, but Paul was talking to a, a, a generation of people that is very similar to our own. A similar generation in the fact that there is rampant sexuality, loss, anger, breakdown, disunity, disharmony. His culture was not much different than ours. It was a culture also that lost the aspect of submission. No submission. No submission to authority. There was a disrespect for God and his word. There was a disrespect for moral authority. There was a disrespect for civil authority at that time. We are living in a time today where people are living as oppressed versus oppressors, where we feel as though we are constantly under a victim mentality. The world's mindset of secularism, a godlessness that is around, you will find time after time that God is not reverenced, he is not spoken of. Humanity, humanism has now taken over our culture. It's all about us. We become the center of humanity. We become the center of life rather than God. There's a relativism that takes place in our society as well, where there is no absolute truth, no objective standard for right and wrong. There's a breakdown that happens vertically. There's a breakdown that happens horizontally because we do not have a structure that holds us together. Not only is there secularism that is rampant, not only is humanism rampant and relativism rampant, but emotionalism is rampant. Today, what people determine as truth is what they feel deeply or they experience. That becomes the guiding force for truth. So you can't speak to what a person has felt and you can't speak to what a person has experienced because you are going against their truth. We live in a pragmatic culture as well, where the ends justify the means. As long as I get a good result, then I, everything is good. It doesn't matter how I got there, as long as I got the good result that I desire. And we are living in a culture today where people's lives are private. What they do in private is radically different than what they display in public. That's the world that we live in today. That's not really much different than Paul's world, a world where it's godless, where it's human-centered, where there is no truth, where there are emotions and experiences that determine reality, where the ends justify the means, where people's lives publicly and they live another different life privately. God has given us this law, and it was a blessing that God has given us his law in the 66 books, but primarily in the Old Testament. He gave us a law, and the law was beautiful because what it does is it displays who God is. It displays his character. The law displays not only his character of righteousness and holiness, but it displays our sinfulness. As I look at the law and I compare myself with the law, I can see that I am off course and I need something else. It causes me to run to a savior. That is why churches preach, hopefully, Lord willing, 
law and then gospel. They will teach you what is wrong and then they will take you to the only one that could save you, Christ. Law not only shows us God and shows us our sinfulness and points us to Christ, but law restrains evil. What law does is it provides a structure and a boundary, but where there is no law, people will go chaotic. When there is no king in Israel, everyone will do what? What is right in their own eyes. And so where there is no restraint, there is chaos and confusion, and that's what we see in our world. The word, the law was given to us to show us God. The law was given to us to show us our sin and to point us to Christ. The law was given to us to restrain evil. But the law was also given to us as believers by the power of the Holy Spirit to live in a way that honors God. The problem is that if we lose the restraint that the law has provided... We will assault it, we will corrupt it, we will diminish, diminish it, we will destroy it, and ultimately it will lead to chaos and confusion and conflict in this world. You do not have to turn on the news much, um, turn it on for two minutes, and you can see the chaos, the confusion, the conflict over and over and over again. And then what God has given us is he's given some restraining forces as well. Not only the law, which is stamped into our hearts and our conscience. That every single person, whether they've ever sat in a Christian church or not, whether they've ever opened the Bible or not, have a conscience. And they know right from wrong. And scripture tells us in Romans 2 that that conscience tells them whether they are on a right path or not. But what a person can do is press down that conscience so much so that they don't hear it anymore. That conscience becomes hardened and dead. And that's what happens in our culture. God has given us the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to restrain evil. To provide a structure so that you can stand under the word, being taught the word by coming along other believers, to be filled by the spirit, and to restrain the evil that wants to come out of your life. God has given us a conscience. He's given us the church. God has given us even governance structures to restrain evil. But we are living in a society today that wants to go against all of those structures. The conscience, the church, the government, and authorities. But God has also given you a family. God has given family to restrain evil and to grow us in Christ's likeness. But the problem is, is that in our society today, we have a breakdown in the family epidemic out in the world, but it is becoming epidemic in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, our world is going to be chaotic. No stability, no foundation. It's going to be confused as to what is true because there is no absolute truth that they hold to and there's going to be a lack of clarity. It is going to be full of conflict because harmony only comes from being in God. And God brings about that unity in the midst of the diversity. God brings about the harmony that this world longs for. They will never get it outside of Christ. And the chaos, the confusion, the conflict, the loss of hope, the loss of peace, the loss of joy is epidemic in our world. What is God calling for? God is calling for families to live godly. In a world that is post-Christian. He is calling for families to live godly in a world that has gone away from God's word. Has gone away from God's centeredness. Has gone away from God's glory. 
We are called to be salt in the midst of light and light and light in the midst of darkness. We're called to be countercultural. John said this about Jesus when he came. He said that the word became flesh, John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory as the only father, son of the father, full of grace and truth. And it talked interestingly about Jesus. He came here to this earth, earth to dwell with us. He took on human nature, his incarnation, truly God and truly man, but he dwelt among us and he was a man full of grace and truth. And in many ways, I think that's what we're called to be. We're called to dwell with one another in harmony and we're supposed to be people full of grace and truth. So, so what I'm going to say to you this morning is that we're called to have godly marriages and godly ha- families. You're called to be godly children. All of us are children in some way or another. And we're called to be godly husbands. And we're called to be godly home, have godly homes. Now what I will tell you is this. It is absolutely impossible for you to do this without Christ. It's absolutely impossible to do this without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. You cannot be that submissive father, the father that is loving his wife or the husband that is loving his wife or the wife that is submissive to her husband and respecting her. You can't do that without the power of God working in your life. And you cannot be children who are obedient and honoring and you cannot be a father who is going to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord without the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't try to do it. You will fail. But what I can tell you is this, that the God that spoke this world into existence, the God that holds this universe in the palm of his hands, has the God who resurrected Christ from the dead lives in you. And if he lives in you, he can transform you. He can change you radically. And you may look back, and as I go through some of these things this morning, you may look back and say, I failed, I failed, I failed. I I hear it. I look at this, when I was reading this passage, meditating on this passage, I look at so many ways that I have failed as a husband and as a father. But the beauty of the gospel is this. We just sang it. You are forgiven and you are free. Okay? So hear the gospel. Christ-centered, cross-centered, word-centered, spirit-empowered, God-glorifying homes. You can have that. And then we could be light in the midst of the dark world and we could be radically different, countercultural. That can be you. Ephesians has been an interesting book to study. I'm really sad that we're going to get out of it, but I'm looking forward to the next series. That we, I love the, new, uh, the books that we're going to be reading through or working through over the next several months. Ephesians begins in Ephesians 1 about these beautiful blessings that God has given us in Christ, the spiritual blessing, blessing after blessing, and then Paul ends with prayer. And Paul has this pattern, you know, he tells you something, then he prays. He tells you something, then he prays. In in the second chapter, he talked about the fact that where we were outside of Christ and what God has done, but God has transformed you, that he has brought you to life, he's brought you to faith, he's brought you into the family, and then he prays. And then he talks about that we are one in Christ, the harmony that we could have horizontally because of Christ. And then he prays. And then he prays a really strong prayer at the end of chapter 3. And then all of that is what we call the indicative portion of the book. The indicative portion of the book is what God has taught us about the beliefs. What you need to believe about what God has done for you. What the God the Father has planned for you. What Jesus Christ provided for you. And what the Holy Spirit has been the pledge for you. The power for you. 
And then the fourth chapter began the imperative section. And this is an imperative section where, where the commands come in. This is how you live. In light of the gospel, this is how you live out the gospel in the world. And he began by saying that I'm a prisoner for the Lord Jesus Christ, and I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And if you remember, when we talked about walking, we talked about it's an advancement. It's about an action. It's a manner of life. This should be your typical way of life. And then we saw the section where it talked about the church and where you were called to submit to authority and where we have unity in the midst of diversity. And then we talked about the new life in Christ. And then we talked about the walk of love. And we talked about wives and husbands. And now we're children and parents. Look back with me to chapter 5, verse 15. It says this, Look carefully then how you walk. Remember, actions, a manner of life, and advancement. That's what we're talking about walking. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for, which lead, for that is debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit. His whole idea of this filling element is so important. You know, filling of the Holy Spirit is interesting because, uh, you know, some people kind of think of it like filling a glass jar and that we need more of the Holy Spirit. You just need more of the Holy Spirit. But that, that's not exactly what is happening with the filling of the Spirit. It's actually that the Holy Spirit gets more of you. And as he gets more of you, one pastor gave this illustration of a glove. I've been wearing gloves. It's been pretty cold lately. And when you put a glove on, the glove is filled by my hand. And then the glove's movement is based on my hand's movement. That's what is supposed to be happening with the filling of the Spirit. How much has God gotten the inside of you? And how much is he moving you and controlling you? And he talks about this filling of the Spirit. And he talks about it should bring about a worshipful life. It should bring about a desire to submit. It should bring about a desire to love, a husband loving his wife, a wife willing to submit, that they're coming together in this oneness. And then it comes to this passage that we'll be looking at this morning. That's my intro. Children, chapter 6, verse 1. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long, live, uh, live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So this is the word of the Lord. Simple outline this morning. I have three main points. The children's responsibility to live a godly life. Then the father's responsibility to live a godly life. And then the gospel in this section. So let's start with the children's responsibility. How to be a godly child. Verses 1 through 3. It's interesting that Paul gave three verses to this. And only one verse to the father. But there's a lot of stuff for fathers. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to give two present imperatives. He's going to do two commands that you are required to follow in this life. And he says, first, 
children obey your parents, so we need to be obedient if we are children. And every single one of us are children. Now, maybe our parents have passed on. You all are still children nonetheless. But what he's talking about here primarily is the child that is within the home. And so those of you that are still in your parents' homes, the call here by Paul is to be obedient. Paul speaks of living in a godly home, and he addresses children first. He addresses the subordinate first, and then he will address the leader. He will do the same with slaves and masters in the next section. And what he's doing is this, that he's encouraging them to be obedient because of their obligation to the Lord. This is so important. The children that are spoken here are still in the home. They're old enough to understand, so they're cognitive enough to understand, and they also know whether they could choose to go right along with their parents or go the wrong way. Paul is using a word here, obey, which is connected to the word submit, which he talked about a little bit earlier. And what it talks about is this. We need to fall in line under the leader that is there. Now, once again, you are filled by the Spirit. There should be a willingness to be led by the Spirit and that he is moving you in your life. And as he's moving you in your life, it should come out in your relationships with others. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18, it talks about those that are stubborn and rebellious children. And that those that do not obey their parents, and when they do not obey their parents, and when they do not listen to their parents, their parents are disciplining them, and it brings more conflict and chaos. God set up authority structures in our lives. Most of us don't like authority structures. We, we fight against it. We've been fighting against it since the Garden of Eden. God says, do this, and we say, I'm not. God says, don't do this, and I say, I am. We have been fighting God's authority right from the beginning, and children have done this as well. And these authority structures that God has given us, when we do not follow them, we fail to recognize that there's a horizontal problem, but there's a greater problem, a vertical problem. When I fail to follow the leader that I have, unless they're telling me to sin, I am failing not only to follow the horizontal leader and the earthly leader, I am failing to follow God. Because God has put this earthly structure above me, and unless that earthly structure and that earthly authority is telling me to sin, I am subordinate and I'm supposed to follow the rule. We don't like to do that. So what, what does obedience mean? Obedience means this. In essence, it means that you are willing to dutifully submit yourself to the compliances and the commands of another. Dutifully. That means it's our duty, it's our obligation. Submit ourselves. We put ourselves under this. We comply. We follow through the commands that they offer, the rules and the standards, and that's the person that's an authority in our lives. When we do that for the Lord Jesus Christ, what we do is we make it our duty to submit to him. We submit ourselves to his rules and his standards. We put ourselves under his authority and his leadership in our lives. Jesus Christ modeled this. He fulfilled the duty to come here from heaven to earth to live what God has required and to follow his father's standards. Remember on the night that he was betrayed, he says, it's not my will, but what? Yours be done or thy will be done. Jesus Christ constantly showed that he submitted himself to his father's desires time after time in his life. And he modeled for us what we are called to do. He submitted himself to his parents he submitted himself to his heavenly father 
And he, is so, he even submitted himself to earthly authorities at times when they were telling him not to do things that were sinful. It's our duty to obey him. Obedience is interesting because uh, we had this little thing in our home. The son is sitting back there. I don't know if he remembers. I'm sure he does. We used to say in our home, obey right away, all the way, with a good attitude every day. Oof. Obey right away. What does it mean? Immediate, not delayed. So if I ask you to take the garbage out, you do it now and immediately. You don't wait till whenever you want to. It's immediate, right away. Obey right away. Obey all the way. If I tell you to take the garbage and the recycling out, you take the garbage and the recycling out. You don't just take the garbage out. Because partial obedience is disobedience. Obey right away, all the way, with a good attitude. It's not enough to do the external actions. I need to have a heart attitude that is honoring of God. If I ask you to ask for forgiveness from somebody, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I may have done that at times. It has to be a good attitude. It needs to be heartfelt not negative, not gloomy, not hostile. Obey right away, all the way, with a good attitude every day. It's daily, it's reliable, it's consistent, it's not unreliable, it's not changeable, it's not erratic. So obedience requires that we do what we are told when we are told with a respectful attitude. So he begins by saying, students, children, obey. He, says, he goes on to say, in the Lord. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And what he's saying is this. Now, it could be that he's saying it's Christian parents that we're called to obey. Is this word in the Lord modifying the parent or is it modifying the child's behavior? Is it that I am only called to obey Christian parents? That's not what I believe it's saying. I think what he's saying here is this. That phrase, in the Lord, is not modifying the parent, but it's modifying your behavior. Your behavior is this. You, call, you are called to love and to respect God and Christ, and in doing so, you will obey your earthly parents. Then he says, in the Lord, for it is right. Submission is moral. It's the right thing to do. It's the expectation of your life. What we do is this, we grow up in a home where we learn to submit and obey so that when we go out into the world, we will learn to be submissive and obedient to the structures that are outside. A child that grows up in a home without those structures will go out into the world and try to break every standard that is outside. God has sovereignly ordained a mom and a dad to hold you accountable so that you can live a life that is gonna honor him. So he begins by saying the first imperative here is children obey, but then he goes, verse two, honor your father and mother. Now, it's interesting for me that he began with father and mother here, but he's gonna nail it down to fathers in a moment, and we'll see why. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment. Paul extends his admonition that the, he's instructing these children to honor their parents. He says, honor them. And this honor is, means that it extends into your adult life. So if children obedient is within the home, that all of us, if your parents are still alive, you are called to honor them. What does it mean to honor them? 
Honor means to show them a level of weightiness, value, respect. We have so many people today that are living in this world that disdain authority, disrespect authority, ignore authority, devalue and disparage one another. We're not called to do that. What he's saying is this. I want you to see that I want you to value your parents. I want you to honor them. I want you to esteem them, even if they're not worthy of honor, because I have put them into your life. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 5. It says this. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land for the Lord is giving you. So what Paul is saying is this, that he is saying that I want you to not only to in action obey your parents, but in attitude I want you to value them. What do you do if your parents are not worthy of that honor because they've done dishonorable things? And scripture says that what we're called to do is to obey them and to value them and to honor them unless they're asking you to go against God's standard. Other than that, what we're called to do is to keep our hearts open to a reconciled relationship with them. Maybe you're in a broken relationship with a parent right now. What we're called to do is to be loving and gracious, not be so dominated by what they've done, but be dominated by your heavenly father who loves you and has never left you and is there for you. That you be filled by the spirit that as he's moving your life, you become an opportunity to be a witness for that parent that was struggling. But never go down the path of sin. He says here that God promises to bless obedient children. He says in verse 3 that it may go well with you. That you may live long in the land. What does it mean well with you? That God is going to bless you. Now, when he says that you may live long, some have interpreted that to mean that if you are a, an obedient child, you will live a long life. And if you are a disobedient child, you will not live a long life. And I don't believe that this is a specific promise as more as it's a principle that happens. That in a society that have children that are obedient, their lives tend to go better. And that in a society where you have, or a family, where you have children that tend to be disobedient, their lives tend to be more challenging. Now, there, there are people that are sitting here in our congregation today that have been godly parents and they've had wayward children. And then there's some in our congregation today that have been ungodly parents and you have godly children. Each person is responsible for the choices that they make. But what we are called to do as parents is to provide the structure. The structure alone does not mean that this person is going to immediately follow it. But you're called to provide the structure. And you're called to provide the opportunity. So for children, be obedient and be honoring. And so I, I, what I ask you is this. One finger out, three fingers point back. For the children that are here in this congregation this morning, how many of you have been struggling with some level of disobedience in your life? What are the things that are off track in your life? Where do you know that your parents have said, I need to follow this and I failed to follow it? I want you to think about those that are dishonoring of their parents, have beaten them down, devalued them, dismissed them, disdained for your parents. 
I'm telling you that in Christ, you can seek his forgiveness and he can move forward in freedom if you choose to. But I will tell you that if you do not, this is not primarily a horizontal issue as much as it's a vertical issue. Be obedient for God and honor your parents for God. But now Paul turns his attention to fathers. It's the father's responsibility. Verse 4. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. It's interesting that he gives one prohibition for the fathers in a negative, and then he gives two, two imperatives and responsibilities. The one prohibition is do not provoke your children to anger. It's a present imperative as well, and it's a negative. He says, do not provoke your children to anger. I was trying to think of ways that we could provoke our children to anger, and there are many. But do you do me a favor and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a chapter that uh, many have used in weddings. It's called the love chapter. You're familiar with it, right? One of the assignments I give my um, disciples and counselees at times is to take a passage like 1 Corinthians 13 and to compare yourself, to assess yourself in light of this passage. And when we're assessing ourselves in light of this passage, what we're going to try to find is how well are we doing. So let's look. It says in verse 4 of chapter 13, love is patient. So as a father, have you been impatient with your children? Do you find yourself hurrying them along? Do you find yourself not being kind and compassionate to them? He says, love is kind. Do you find yourself hurting them, despising them, showing unkindness in your life? It says, love is not only patient and kind, it does not envy or boast. Do you find yourself making it all about you, about what you want, your center of the universe? Love is patient, it's kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not arrogant. Have you found yourself to be proud in your parenting? It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. Are you irritable or resentful? It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Do you look at the evils that happen and you rejoice in it or the good things that happen and you don't? Do you find yourself not bearing with them, not believing them, not hoping with them, and not enduring with them? If you find yourself being the opposite of these things, these are elements of ways that you can look and say, I've been provoking my child to anger. In his book, um, The Heart of Anger, Lou Priola gives 25 ways that we can provoke our children to anger. I'm not going to read all of them, but I'm going to give you some. A lack of marital harmony will provoke our children to anger. Establishing a home and maintaining a home that is child-centered we make it about the child and what they want will lead a child to anger. Modeling sinful anger. Proverbs 22 verses 4 and 5, uh, 25 tell us don't associate with a man of anger or go with a hot-tempered man lest you become like him. Do you habitually discipline your children in anger? Do you scold your children? Are you inconsistent with discipline where you're disciplining them one day this way and then discipline them a different time this way? Do you have a double, a double standard? One child gets this, another child gets that, and it's a double standard. Are you legalistic? You make it all about laws. 
Do you fail to admit when you're wrong and seek forgiveness? Do you constantly find fault in one another? Do you mock your child? Do you abuse your child? Do you ridicule your child? Do you set unrealistic expectations for your child? Do you practice favoritism? That's just a handful of ways. And if you heard that list, very honestly, as I was going through the list myself, I've read this list many times. I look and it's like I look at my face in the mirror of that standard and I say, I failed, I failed, I failed. What he says is this, you need to be self-controlled. See, you can't provoke your children to anger. You need to be self-controlled in your life. But then he says, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He says, train up a child, Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he departs, he will not depart from it. I want every father in this room to think of yourself as a pastor. Tim, Doug, and I serve as your pastors in this church, but every father in this congregation is a pastor of his home. You're called to be a shepherd. You're called to nurture. You're called to... Teach them. You're called to discipline them. You're called to provide a structure. I think part of the reason why we have such a problem in our society today is that the fathers have abandoned these standards in their lives. So we're called to be self-controlled. But then he goes and says this. He gives you two requirements. He says in verse 6, to verse 4 of chapter 6, he says this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Discipline means that you are training them, you're chastening them, even corrective discipline. It means that discipline is encouraging at times and discipline is sometimes painful. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about the fact that if you are not disciplined, you are not a real child, that God even disciplines his children. We're called to be a leader. We're called to provide structure and discipline for our children. The children are not supposed to provide the structure. We are the fathers and the parents are called to provide the structure in the home. But it wasn't just simply the structure from outside. It was the instruction that was supposed to be there. It's not just discipline, but it's instruction. He says this. He says, bring them up not only in the discipline of the Lord, but in the instruction of the Lord. And what does it mean to instruct? It means to teach. Fathers are supposed to raise their children on the word of God. I find it interesting that in most Christian homes, who is doing the teaching of the children in the home? The moms. It's the moms who tend to go to the Bible study. It's the moms who tend to be reading in the Bible. It's the moms who are teaching their children. And what is God requiring of us as men and as husbands? We are supposed to be the ones that are teaching. That doesn't mean that our wives and the mothers are not supposed to teach. But it is the father that is called to be leading the shepherd pastor of this home. And he's saying that if you want to have a countercultural home, you need to have obedient children, honoring children. You need to have self-controlled fathers. You need to have fathers that are leaders and providing discipline. But you also need to have fathers that are instructing and teaching their children. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It teaches us truth. It tells us where we're wrong. It tells us how to get right. 
And it tells us how to be on the right path. That's what the word does. You men need to be word-centered men. And as the word richly dwells in you, it will come out of you. And you will love your wife. And you will lead your home. And we will have godly marriages and godly families in this broken world. 2 Timothy, that same book in chapter 2, Paul said, You then, my child, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who are able to teach others. Paul's discipline process was this. He taught, Timothy heard, Timothy taught men, and the men would go out and teach others. But that's the same thing here in our home. You as a leader, teach your family. Your family learns, and then they go out and teach others. It's a process, but it starts with the leader. Knowing the word, being filled by the word, filled with the spirit, and allowing the spirit to have more of you so that you can grow and live. Let me close this with this. There are three offices that Jesus Christ held. Prophet, priest, king. As a prophet, Jesus Christ was the speaker of the word to you. As fathers, churches are supposed to be prophet, priest, and king as well. Fathers, you are supposed to bring the word to your family. Fathers are responsible for the spiritual instruction. He is responsible to teach his word to his family. In Colossians 3.21, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You're provoking them by not bringing them to the word and not modeling the word. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 18 through 21, it says this, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you should bind them as a sign on your hand, and you shall put them as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking about them when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking in the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You are to write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be be multiplied in the land of the Lord. Do we do that? I want you to know that there's not a situation that is not available to you to be able to use the word. I was driving home with my son from a basketball game yesterday. I used it as an opportunity to teach him something about the word. Every situation that you encounter, fathers, you have an opportunity to teach your kids the word. Bring them not to you, but bring them to the Father, the Heavenly Father. Fathers are not only called to be prophets, prophets are called to be priests. Now, Jesus Christ was the ultimate priest. In the Old Testament, the priest would slaughter an animal. Jesus Christ became the slaughter for you and for me. He died for you. He rose for you. He sacrificed not an animal. He sacrificed himself to save his people. So are we supposed to sacrifice ourselves for our family? Yes. Not in the same way as Jesus, but we are supposed to bring them to the cross. And as you bring them to a cross, you bring them to a Christ who loved them, a cross that is providing forgiveness for them and freedom from them. Too many fathers are law-driven people rather than grace-driven people. We need to bring them to the gospel. I have failed in so many ways of this list, but I want to go back to the cross and stand before the cross because I am forgiven and set free. So are you if you run to it. Fathers are called to be prophets, called to be priests, and fathers are called to be kings. 
So many fathers have abandoned the leadership in their home. So where does the gospel come in? See, if children are called to be responsible by being obedient and honoring, and if fathers are called to be obedient, uh, called to be self-controlled, and they're called to be teachers, and they're called to be leaders, where does the gospel come in? The gospel comes in as this. It's good news. It reminds you that God is the God that we serve. It reminds you that we, he loves you and he's merciful to you. It reminds you of your true awareness of yourself, that God's holiness and our sinfulness. It reminds you to humble yourself before the Lord, turning to him, rather than self-absorbed lives, a life that is trusting in God, that God is now filling your life and moving your life. It reminds you that you're forgiven of your sins, that you're adopted in Christ, and that you are dearly loved. It reminds you to control yourself so that you will represent God, that you're inspired by him, that you're empowered by him, and that you're growing in godliness in him. It transforms you so that you look more like him. It reminds you to love other people, that you see other people, not you're not seeing the center of yourself as yourself, that you are seeing other people, and you're loving God, and you're loving others. You will have compassion with your wives. You have compassion with your children. You have compassion with others. And as Jesus came here not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Children, obey your fathers and mothers in the Lord, for this is right. Honor them. This is the first commandment with a promise. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline structure and instruction the word of the lord father i pray that today you would remind us of the brokenness that is in this world and the brokenness in this world is byproduct of the brokenness that is in our own lives Father, there's a rebel nature within me and within us. We don't want to be obedient. We do not want to honor. We want people to obey us and we want to be honored. Lord, please forgive us for that. And Lord, as a dad, Father, far too often we as fathers have not been self-controlled. We haven't controlled ourselves and we expect our children to control themselves, but we, we haven't modeled that, Lord. And far too often, Father, we have not disciplined our children, provided structures, and far too often we have not instructed them in the word. And Father, it would be very easy for us to hear this and to feel guilt and condemnation and hopelessness and nothing can change. Maybe some of us don't have our kids in our home any longer. It doesn't mean anything now. What we can do is we can still be empowered by your spirit. Your spirit can still fill us and we could start to represent you. We could represent you and honor you and provide discipline and instruction for our families. Lord, that doesn't stop. Our call to honor you doesn't stop. So help us to continue to do that. Father, remind us it's impossible without your Holy Spirit in our lives. So thank you for the gospel that tells us that we're forgiven and free. Thank you for the empowering work of your spirit that can change us from the inside out. I pray that our families could start to represent your son, the power of your spirit, the glory of your name. 
And I pray that you could change us from the inside out, Lord. I pray that we could be lights in the dark world. And I pray that you would remind us that you are with us. Your son is the vine and we are the branches. If we're in him, we'll bear much fruit. Without him, we can't do anything. Help us to connect deeply to your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. my life. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, for Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for thy King. Take my lips and let My silver and my gold, not a mind would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as you choose. And here am I, all of me, and take. And here am I, all of me, and take my life, it's all for thee. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at your feet, it's treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. And here am I, all of me, and take my life, it's all for thee. And here am 
Thank you this morning that we can gather as a church and praise and worship you, Lord, and hear your word and be challenged. Lord, like I prayed earlier, thank you for not leaving us here, leaving us here without a guide that you sent your son to earth, but then you left your word with us too. We thank you that we can use that to impact our families, help us to do better. I'm sure almost all of us in this room are listening to Pastor James this morning and hearing these things and thinking, I can do better. And Lord, you're calling us to do better. And beyond calling us to do better, Lord, you've given us what we need to do better. You've given us the example that you have set for us. And you've given us your word, which we can use as a guide. Lord, we ask now as we go into our weeks, and as we think about our families, I think about how we can work with them better, how we can be more obedient children, be better mothers and fathers. We ask God that we would do all those things for your glory. Thank you for this time, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.